You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom. This is To Stir With Love, Tales from Prison, with Rabbi Yitzchak Kolakowski. Uh, most of the time when we talk here, we talk about some of the inmates, we talk about their tragedies, we talk about their foibles. We talk about should they have been arrested or not. Um, I think tonight, uh, from what I garner from our sort of pre-podcast discussion, that uh, you'd like to maybe spend some time talking about not the inmates themselves, but some people who are not officially part of your very competent staff, but a group of seminarians from a... Uh, a monastery or school that is near the prison that you work at. And I understand that this is a, uh, a seminary that's called Pan-Orthodox, where it's not what we would call, obviously not Protestant or Catholic, uh, but a form of Catholicism that we know more as um, the Greek Orthodox or the Eastern or uh, uh, Catholic, uh, the old original um, Catholicism, so to speak, and uh, they have transplanted themselves here, and they've been in America, of course, for a long time. And these seminarians are uh, young men, obviously, who are studying uh, to eventually, I assume, accept the mantle of the priesthood within the Orthodox Church. And from what I gather, from what you've told me, that part of what of their um, their uh, I guess you would call their ex their externship, or part of what they need to do, or their internship, is to uh, not just study, but actually be involved in good deeds, and minister to poor souls, poor wretched souls like the ones that you have uh, incarcerated in, in Waymart. And um, it's since it sounds like even before you got there. Maybe it's maybe you're the one who instituted it. That this was something that the prison did not discourage and encouraged to actually have visits from people of faith. And so, so, so go we, ahead. We've always had uh, volunteer programs throughout the prisons. We also always had internship programs. Not only this internship program, but also with some of the local universities. Let's say someone studying to be a doctor or a nurse might have some kind of an internship there at the prison as well, or someone saying be a psychologist. But uh, at that seminary, the uh, named after St. Tikhon, who I believe was from Alaska, because of course the Russians owned Alaska before, before our fellow New Yorker, um, uh, William Seward bought it. Uh, and everyone thought he was making a mistake buying an ice box and it turned out there was a lot of oil there. Seward's folly, yeah, sure. It wasn't quite a folly for, for Seward to to buy that. Um, but uh, He got the, it at a good price. Yeah. <laughs> that being said, the, the Russian Orthodox Church had a presence in North America going back there, and that's that's really where their where they they had their their bearings was was bearing and bear bearings the bearing straight. You're full of wonderful puns tonight. <laughs> They came across uh, straight across the Bering Strait, yeah. yeah. And they, uh, and they, they, um, 
they convert a lot of the the Eskimos and and the in, the uh, the Aleutian people there. Yeah, is Eskimos, by the way, has that been outlawed as a uh, as a as a as the wrong way to refer to the yeah. to the natives? You're not supposed to call them Eskimos, right? Right, right. They're they're Inuits and Alu the Aleutians and a few other tribes that are up there. Do you think there's going to be a movement um, with pressure on that ice cream company to change their name now? Eskimo pie, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I'm, look, the, look, the the Washington Redskins, Hasvashalom, to say that you can't say that, yeah. you know, you know, you can't say Sonny Jurgensen who used to play for the Washington Redskins, right? Redskins is terrible. Maybe Eskimo pie is also going to um, uh, be considered, uh, you know, a terrible uh, racist thing to say. Maybe I don't know. I'm yeah. not. I'm, yeah. yeah, but anyway, so they, 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 the, the, uh, the Catholics, the Roman uh, Catholic Church, um, not Roman Catholic. The, the I'm Russian sorry, the Greek. I'm sorry, the Russian Orthodox Church uh, was able to make a headway uh, in that uh, in Alaska, uh, and that was that was their first locations in in North America. So anyway, uh, they have a seminary in Canaan, South Canaan, Pennsylvania, which is just up the road from Waymart. Right, we've talked about Canaan, yes. And? and there's another prison, the federal prison in, is in Canaan. Right, we talked about that, yeah. And, uh, and then they, um, this, in order for the uh, St. Tikhon's uh, Orthodox Seminary to have their, um, what's, what's the word that uh, a college has to be um, accredited, accredited. In, for, in order for them to get their accreditation, I believe from ATS, from Associate Theological Schools. Very familiar they, with that. I worked for an accreditation company. I know very much about this. Yes, so they they they, they have to they have to have a real curriculum. So part of the curriculum was field studies, and mm -hmm. so it, so they actually started. The Waymart Prison was originally a mental hospital. Uh, called the Farview um, uh, Hospital or Home for the Mentally uh, for the Criminally Insane, I believe, and that's the building that we use. And they actually already had this this relationship with St. Tikhon's when it was the mental hospital, going back in, into the 1980s. And then when it converted into a prison, they continued this relationship, a very long-standing relationship between the St. Tikhon Seminary and uh, Waymark Prison right from the beginning of the prison. And uh, one of the chaplains there at the, pretty much all the chaplains who were there at the hospital transferred over uh, into the prison. So there was a previous uh, FCPD was uh, Reverend Gagas, some kind of a Protestant, not sure what, I never met him. But then we have Father John Kowalczyk, who's a very well-known uh, chaplain particularly mental health chaplain and he's and he's been at waymark since the beginning it was pretty much him and then we have a rabbi itkin who's a the lubavitcher shliach from scranton they're the two longest serving chaplains at waymark both right from when the prison opened i believe in 1989 and prior to that at the farview hospital so, so so i know since my daughter is doing her externship at a animal hospital in um, mid or south Jersey, I know that one of the um, ways you can tell if a place is efficient is if they know how to integrate someone who's new 
and to actually use them in the best possible way. And they shouldn't just be uh, disturbing things and getting all over the place. And as you say, there is this long history. So I would assume that they aren't just, you know, hovering around. You probably there probably is a set order of what they know what to do when they when they when these seminarians come, right? And you probably have a certain schedule for them. Or, right. or that's what we're pretty much, you know, why I the past two Wednesdays today and last Wednesday I visited the seminary, gave them a little schmooze about what it's like working in a prison being involved in prison ministry, the ministry of presence and other aspects of prison ministry. And pretty much when they come, when things are normal, they, they'll go around the prison and, and just sit down with guys, talk to them, counsel them, particularly the within the prison, the guys who need a little bit more physic, whether they're mentally ill, whether they're the geriatric prisoners, uh, other people, and just to give them time to, to sit and talk. And it's really an eye-opening experience for the seminarians as well to be able to have this experience to go into a prison, to uh, interact with inmates, to, to minister to them at, you know, people in, in, in need. They also, I think, part of their, they also intern in the, in the nursing home and in a regular traditional hospital. So that's, these are all of their field work uh, right, but I, I would assume the safeguards uh, in your institution are probably a lot stricter, and especially since there's definitely the propensity for violence and uh, the fact is, I mean, we've talked about before uh, that there was sometimes issues about uh, prisoners making connections uh, with people on the outside, and that wasn't something that was always looked upon so well. So uh, I, I'm sure these seminarians, when you give them their uh, marching orders. Uh, there's certain do there's certain don'ts that they need to adhere to that aren't going to be relevant uh, at the nursing home, right? There's certain oh, don'ts. A lot, a lot of don'ts. Yeah. yeah so why, why don't you why don't you list off a couple of them? Don't give me the whole list here because I don't yeah. think the show is going to be that exciting. When you know thinking about seven, what what Kolakowski tells the seminarians that ain't exactly. Uh, I don't know if I can put that in the uh, show notes. So, but give me a couple of things that uh, some of the don'ts that the seminarians uh, are supposed to be careful about. And anybody who goes into a prison has to realize where they are and who they're dealing with, whether it means that we're trying to make sure that inmates aren't trying to manipulate us. And, and certainly, um, you know, chaplains tend to be a, a, an easy target for man manipulation. So, you know, if an inmate is going to say, oh, can you, can you mail this letter for me? Can you send regards to someone? Can this and that? The answer is no, pretty much. You know, that's not what they're there for. They're there to talk, you know, to... And they, they have plenty of what to talk about other than these things. And, and, you know, because one thing could lead to another. And then the other big issue with not only with our, with, with anybody who works there, but also our, all of our volunteers and interns is that there's a federal, uh, a federal law called PREA, the Prison Rape Elimination Act. And, um, and it was uh, signed into law in 2003, federal law. And a lot of our, funding is based on uh, being compliant with this law. And among those things is that if an inmate reports uh, that they had been sexually abused, uh, we have to immediately, do not, do not pass go, do not collect $200, we have to immediately report this, whether or not we believe it's credible. 
you know, especially dealing with a lot of the mentally ill and other things that the inmates might be um, playing games just mm-hmm. to get attention or to take revenge on someone or many reasons why they might make a, either a false accusation or they might be under delusion. That's not our business. We have to report it because we want, you know, the point of this law is to change the, the culture of the prisons. And, it, and it's been widely successful. The, the, the incidence of, of, uh, of sexual abuse in prison has gone way, way down since this law has has been oh added. that's i'm sure that that sounds like a very important step how does this relate to the seminarians though well so it's very likely that an inmate will mention that you know this to a seminarian it happens quite often that they'll mention more to any other volunteer or any other chaplain particularly because the inmates might feel more comfortable talking to them about it than to talk to a ceo or to talk especially if their claim, which again, it might be true or might not be true, and most of the time we find that it isn't, but at least we're, you know, we're reporting and doing our side, is that if the claim is against a uh, a member of the staff, so they, you're uh, going to feel safer telling someone who's not uh, part of the club, you know, not, so, not a staff member. So are you saying that that if one, let's say, inmate A uh, speaks to seminarian B, and mm-hmm. tells them that inmate C has raped them, that that seminarian now has a duty as a responder, uh, a reporter, to tell you about that or to tell some official yep. about that? Yep, and then, and then from there it goes to the, we, we right away call the shift commander, who's pretty much the one who's really running everything going on in the prison. Uh, you know, pro, uh, the, like a, uh, a commanding officer in the prison. And then we have some paperwork to fill out, and, and then and then and then they do their investigation. You know, once wow. this has been reported, if if they're reporting that another inmate has assaulted them, that means that they're going to be separated from that inmate. You know, they're, if they're housed in the same housing unit, somebody's going to get moved, um, and and yeah. things like that. You know, wow. that's so. But, I, I see. So and 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 and. and... It sounds from the way you're speaking, uh, Yitzhak, that this has probably occurred, right? You probably have had gotten reports from seminarians over the years about sexual assault, right? Yes, and, and not only from the seminarians, from other volunteers, and it's some it's something we take very very seriously. Um, and it's it, and like I said, the program has been widely successful as far as changing the changing the culture of the prisons, where you know, uh, whereas I, I remember. So that's one of that's one of the do's. In other words, the don't is don't take a letter, don't offer to do something to people on the outside, don't bring things to them. And one of the do's is is that realize that when you're speaking to these uh, inmates, that sometimes the information isn't just a way to pass the time and to make them feel better, but some of that information might be crucial uh, to their well-being and health. Right. And they have a they have a responsibility to be a listener. And and there's a problem with that too, though, the, uh, especially when we're dealing with people in the priesthood. And a lot of these men are already ordained as priests. Uh, they, you know, they're still in seminary because maybe they're going to get their master's degree before they get assigned to a parish. But they are uh, they are ordained priests, and they can hear confession. So if if an inmate would confess that they committed this crime against another inmate, that poses a theological issue as to whether or not the 
confidence of the um, of the confession uh, applies here, and we actually discussed that today. And the one thing that that the all of these seminarians explained is that at least in their church, might be different in the Catholic Church, although I believe it's similar, is that the confession is a particular uh, sacrament in the church, and if it's not in the milieu of that sacrament, if someone just it's not if it's not in that vestibule where you it's not, well, if it's it not have to be in the vestibule but it has to be within the context of that they're seeking out uh, you know ablution from uh sin ablution from the sin um and, and and that also includes contrition and so forth so it's not it's not just uh it's not a simple matter but the point is is that they have if they're not doing this within a liturgical sense in a sacramental sense if they're not everything that you say to a priest is necessarily a uh, a confession and that they're hearing confession and and that would be, and that would be safeguarded by uh, the their religion not to uh, reveal right they generally would be but because it's not within the sense of the, I understand the, the this 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 context they they would have to report it you know, mm. because there's well, that's a that's already a very uh, that sounds quite Talmudic, actually. I really I like that. That's sort of like the um, it's like is as a person of Zokin Mamre, if he happens to um, uh, deal with the Besden, but they're not at the place of the Lishka Sagosis, right? The fact that yeah. you argue with them, uh, you, you can be as cogent and as brilliant in your argument and as vehement, but if it's not within uh, the procedure, uh, the laws don't kick in. And that's the same thing here, that uh, it's not really called a confession. Although, as you can say, sometimes if, let's say, they, uh, they, they speak to the seminarian and they speak to the priest and they say, I want to confess, I feel bad, I want to tell you that I raped this person or I, or I did this sin, would that already create uh, the idea of, uh, of a confession and the protection that a confession uh, uh, affords? Well, since, since the, the Orthodox Church is a closed communion church, and we only have, I think, five inmates who are part of the part of the Orthodox Church, if, if the inmate is not from their church, if he's a Lutheran, or if he's a Odinist, or he's a Muslim, or an atheist, or a Jew, and he's saying this, it, it would not be, it would, it certainly would not be. But let's say we have, you know, a couple of Russian guys, or uh, some uh, one Greek guy, a few other guys who are who are part of you know they are baptized in the Orthodox Church. Um, the Orthodox confession is not like the Catholic confession where they go into the booth. Generally, the people confess just face to face to the priest. Uh, usually, as as the just before the priest gives out the uh, gives out the the communion, which in, in the Orthodox Church is leavened bread, and it's not unleavened like it is in the Catholic Church. Um, if, as he's uh, delivering the uh, the communion, usually the the receiver of the communion will will give their confession just face to face. It doesn't. Wow. Have... So even though Catholic by definition means everybody can be under the umbrella, confession would only apply if you've been properly baptized and you're really a member of the church in the communion as well within the meaning. Uh, my understanding is like uh, if a a member of the Catholic Church can't make it to a Catholic Mass, and there happens to be an Orthodox Church nearby, 
and they can make it there for the cat as far as the catholic church is concerned it's uh, at least some maybe biddy evid to the midst of biddy evid of going uh, it's like okay. a, it, it's like hearing lahavdo hearing the, i guess from a Sfardish minion hearing the Sfardish uh, kriya if uh, for partial it's, it's nothing biddy evid hearing hearing from a, a Sfardish kriya maybe may, may the other way around the Sfardi hears the ashkenazi kriya for partial zohar it might be a biddy evid Right. Yeah, or, you know, or, or, or maybe, maybe if you only have a conservative shul, and, uh, you know, you're out on vacation somewhere, and and, uh, and there's a conservative shul, maybe, maybe that that would be. Uh, uh, maybe we could connect this to the famous Truvis Rashbats that talks about the uh, the Maranos or the Jews, the crypto Jews, who um, had to have kedushin uh, in a church. But since it was mostly attended by Jews and they were going to live basically even though they had the and um, that hopefully some of the people who knew about it were still kosher le'edus. So yeah. the Kedushan would still, the Rashbad says, still have been a marriage. So so that's the type of sort of Talmudic uh, uh, halachic-like rulings that uh, the, the Catholic, that the the what we call, I guess, standard Catholicism, a Roman Catholicism, has with uh, Orthodox Catholicism. Yeah, I, I, I saw the website of the of this priest who works for me in the in the prison, and he's in the, of of his church, and it, and it said something along the lines: it "said we are we're Christian but not Protestant, we're Catholic but not Roman, we're Orthodox but not Jewish." <laughs> I think I, I think Amy Coney Barrett also had to uh, explain how she could be an Orthodox Catholic, right? I think so. When she was, uh, uh, yeah, that was our 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 one of our tribes women, uh, Diane Feinstein, decided that she needed to grill her over her religious beliefs. What does that mean that you're Orthodox? What did she say? The dogma lives strongly within you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I see. So this is so. Tell me, you say that you you ran a a seminar at the seminary. Was this yeah. done over Zoom, or you actually you actually went into the uh, you went into the um, to the I, I know what it is a church. You went into the, well, the seminary. The, you went into the seminary. You you went there today. Yeah. 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 I was there today. And was and and there was uh, was there. Um, was the cross on the wall when you were talking? Well, not only I, I, I there's so many different icons. <laughs> the Orthodox Church are, are very into their icons, very sure. different, different than the uh, and the the theology of their iconography is different than than in the Catholic Church, and the the style of the art is very different. But I I, I visit there a few times a year at this at the seminary. One one thing interesting about the seminary. Let me just let me interrupt you just for a second. I, I know that, uh, and all our listeners know, and all your friends know, what type of upkeep and the yid you are. You never asked the Shiva about, uh, you know, going into a place that was so bedecked with uh, the symbols of Christ. I mean, it's uh, the, the 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 fact of the matter is in the the chapel where and where my office is has. As the stations of the cross, they're covered when 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 they're not in use. But the the whole uh, auditorium, the walls are they have. Well, a well, I mean, I remember when I was a rabbi in Houston, I was called into a very difficult case that the boys were playing basketball again. They didn't have Jewish leagues; they had uh, um, 
what's the word I'm looking for? Parochial leagues. Yeah. So they had, you know, the, the Jewish basketball players and they actually went to the Texas state finals uh, the year after I, or actually the year I left, but the year before that, when I was more heavily involved, um, they were playing, you know, teams in a, uh, in a gym that was actually a room that was an, a room that had an altar in it because the, uh, it wasn't, you know, they didn't, the gym was used for services. And the question was, could we bring our people there to be yeah. playing there? So I guess uh, for yourself. What, what, what was the, because uh, this is different. This is not a room where they have their, they have their liturgy. It was it's a classroom. It just happened that classroom is decorated with, with many icons of many of their saints and so forth. But it wasn't, this wasn't a, a, a chapel or a church. This is, you know, they have churches on the ground, but I didn't. So I actually had to, if you're asking what, I hear the difference. In other words, you're going into the uh, classroom and of course there's going to be the iconography and all the icons there and the symbols, but of course you need to go in there. You need to go in there. You need to go in there for your work. And yeah. I, it would be wrong for you to say, I can't go in there unless you take down Jesus. That obviously would, would, would generate a, a tremendous amount of hatred and it might even be halakhically fine for you to run a program one, like one, that. One, one, one younger man I went to yeshiva with, he was a little older than me and, and he went to St. John's and uh, he came back to visit Ezra Academy and he said that the he was in the math class and the professor was a nun and she asked, he said, is any, just, just out of curiosity, is any, any of the students here, any of you Jewish, anybody here in the room Jewish? So he raised his hand and said, me and the guy on the wall. <laughs> I hear. I hear. Yeah, he's here, right? So I guess he was being mighty to God. Like that, that's, that's a problem based on the Gemara in the, uh, uh, and Psochim and in Sanhedrin, he's mighty that he is on the wall. <laughs> anybody? I know, I know. He says anybody here Jewish? He's not here. That's just a picture of him. Picture. If you th if, if you think he's here because of that picture, you got a problem in terms oh, of your Ramuna. Yeah. You hear it? That's the chap. Yeah, yeah. So Rabbi So it was an interesting time. And of course, you would say that these priests, seminarians, uh, are they like the um, you know the the Mormon? Uh, members of the Church of the Latter Day Saints that have such great midos and their adherents when you meet them and are very kind and considerate they, and uh, upstanding. They, they, well, you know, there's a very different culture in the Mormon Church. They're, they're, they're not the, not the shiny teeth and the, uh, the, the kind of sacred yeah. smiles of the Mormon yeah. Church, but they're they're real people, and but they're very kind. Very, it's a very they're very nice, peaceful people. But the fascinating thing to me is how the way that it's set up there, it's like a koilo, because in the Orthodox Church, priests can be married, and before and so if you're going to be a married priest, you have to be married before you start uh, entering into the priesthood. First, you become a deacon before you become a priest, and in, in in the, if you're going to be married as a priest, you have to be married before you're before you even become a deacon, and otherwise you you remain. Uh, once you become wow. a deacon, if you're if so, you're so, married, so you can't marry. So, is are, are there facilities for their wives up there too? They, they live because they're they're also they're being paid to a stipend to be there. Uh, most of most of the guys there not only do they get a, a full 
a full tuition uh, scholarship, but they get paid a, a stipend for for so they're they're like curling the light the way that they uh, mm-hmm. they live and that that to me fascinated me because I always thought the the kolel approach was something purely Jewish and it doesn't exist and there's no comparison the you know in the in in other religions but the fact is that not only do they do that there at the Saint Tikhon Seminary they have a monastery there also for the men who are not going to be married but. The ones who are married, or most of the guys who actually go become parish priests, are married because they expect the you know in the uh, Orthodox Church it's they prefer to have married priests because then they can relate to the people better. You know, only the bishops aren't married and the you know the the and the monks. But the the other thing that I found our imam uh, at Waymart and, and our previous imam as well, who went on to get a full-time job at another prison. Both of them belong to a community that also has the same kind of koilal type of approach that uh, you, you sit and learn the, the hadith and the sunnah and you get, you get paid a stipend and you're, you know, you're married already and you, you're probably already uh, recognized, you know, licensed imam and might have a master's degree already. Most of those guys do. And they, um, I think what you're saying is important. We, we should never believe that we have a monopoly on diligence, a monopoly to subservience or servants to God. And we shouldn't think that, that we are the only ones that are intense believers and passionate about what we do. And not only that, but the other religions also contain uh, wisdom and understanding and the type of things that make for fascinating debate and 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 I, I would assume the fact that you have a Talmudic background allows you to be able to relate to them as well and to understand from whence they come. Uh, they're, they're, they're asking me actually and I, I did ask a, a Shiloh on this from one of my Rebbeim he, he said he, and he was a Bayan and a Paisic and he said that I could take the job they're talking about you know once COVID is over if I could teach a, a course in biblical Hebrew there. That was something they they requested from me there. And, uh, um, I see you might you might not have to do so many weddings now. That would be great. Well, I enjoy doing the weddings, but I <laughs> now the truth comes out. It's not just Parnassa. It's all those great pictures you can post on Facebook, and yeah. all the all the fun weddings. But yeah, so look, some of the our greatest uh, gedolim were uh, teachers in seminaries. The great Rabbi Vadia Sforno, right? That was one of his. Uh, uh, one of the great Renaissance um, Mephorshim, that was one of the things he did was he taught um, and he taught priests and, uh, and and Christians biblical Hebrew. It has a shy, of course, whether you're allowed to be moister divritera lenochrim or not. Right. So, um, um, you know, this gets into the difference between Torah Shabiksav and Torah Shabalpeh. And on that about Torah Shabiksav, about, you know, but. That there might be more focusing on dictuk and things like that. Right. That you right. But, you know, again, based on this three day Chuva three day ish and uh, what the Nitziv writes and the Marume Soda, and again, the Sferno is a pretty listen, if you could become if you could walk in the Sferno's path, um, you know, as what is Ovadia, the Evan Hashem. So I'm sure that would be uh, a great thing for you. All right, so that's our um a little bit of a, a tour of uh, the seminary. Next time I'm in uh, Canaan land, maybe I'll uh, 
and I'll, I'll, I'll they have a museum there. It's actually a really incredible museum. They have a lot of things that belong to the czars and uh, a lot of Russian history there. In the even though this this seminary officially is not strictly Russian Orthodox, it belongs to the Orthodox Church of America, and it's like you said at the beginning, Pan Orthodox to serve the Greeks and the Russians and the Ukrainians and the Latvians and the Estonians. Yeah, <laughs> the. the you know, Sugihara, the famous, uh, the Japanese Schindler, who was probably better than Schindler was, um, uh, he he was a, a Japanese Orthodox Christian. Uh-huh. And Which... actually, the head of, of the uh, Department of Corrections uh, in Pennsylvania, um, is a, he's a convert to the Russian Orthodox Church, the the one who's in the, the general secretary of the Department of Corrections. Uh, well, I know it's a, it's somewhat of a leap, but let's talk Russian now, as I am a half Russian myself. Uh, my mother, of course, was from Simferopol, which is a city in, uh, it's a city in Crimea, uh, which is where I'm, uh, which is where I'm from, in a way, since my, that's where my mom is from. My dad was from Lodz, Poland, so I'm sort of Polish-Russian together. Why don't we talk a little bit about our second favorite or maybe favorite topic that we have in common, uh, the great celluloid cinematic world. What do you got for me in terms of Russians or Russian Orthodox or Greek Orthodox? What do you got? Here's a fascinating piece of history. We know that most movies have a disclaimer that says that the all you know, persons uh, in this uh, movie. It says the the characters and events depicted in this motion picture are entirely fictitious, and similarities to incidents or uh, or people are entirely coincidental. Where did that come about? Why do we have that in movies, along with some other ones about no animals being harmed? That came later. And the- Again, let me let me deepen your question. Why yes. is it even when the film is clearly about some historical person that you still have this disclaimer? That's really the Shiloh, right? First of all, why why the disclaimer? And secondly, it seems like you know, the, sometimes the film does seem to be somewhat about something that might have happened. So tell me what what's the answer? So in 1932, there was an MGM film called Rasputin and the Empress. And Rasputin, of course, was was a a Russian Orthodox priest, uh, as far as or a monk, as far as uh, not not played by Lon Chaney Jr., who you 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 were upset at me the other day for me um, dissing him. No, it wasn't Lon Chaney who played him, right? Who played Rasputin? Was it uh, Harold Arliss? Who was it? I think it. Wait a second. I think it was John Barrymore. John Barrymore. Wow. No, no. Lionel Barrymore played Rasputin. John, ah. Barrymore, John, uh, the, the, all the three Barrymores, John Ethel and Lionel, were all in the film together. I think it might be the only film the three of them appeared together. And ah. John Barrymore played Prince Paul Chikotio, uh, <laughs> and the uh, Ethel Barrymore played the Tsarina Alexandra, and Lionel Barrymore played Rasputin. And ah. that was uh, uh, that was before his. Um... His uh, his problem that he had with walking and stuff uh, uh, unfortunately put him in that wheelchair. As Miss, uh, but I get yeah he was quite a yeah Lionel Barrymore. So Lionel Barrymore was all dressed up in the long locks of Rasputin. And what was and and what and and tell me why did that film? Uh, I'm not running out to see it, but why did it generate uh, 
this disclaimer. So this, this was a pre-code movie, and it wasn't exactly shown in the movie, but it was. It seemed to be insinuated that Princess Natasha, the character in the movie, was raped by by Rasputin, and so um, Natasha was supposed to be. Uh, based on it was a fictional character, but she was based on the Princess Irina, and she was still alive when this movie was around. And she felt that it was an insult to her, to to her honor, to claim that she was a, a rape victim. You know that was the uh, that uh, that, and so she actually sued her and her husband, sued MGM, and and got a million dollar out of court settlement. Um, for uh, or libel. In other words, it would have been libel. libel. The libel was that she was a rape victim, which doesn't make much sense how that's libel that she's a victim, but it, again, it was taken as... And in the movie, uh, they actually had, instead of the disclaimer that we have today, it said in the beginning, this concerns the destruction of an empire. A few of the characters are still alive, and the rest <laughs> met death by violence. So uh, that really made it, you know, they, they really dig, dig themselves deeper by putting, by, by sure. saying that it was, that it was fictitious, but they were making the claim that it was based on, on a true story. And so that's, that's, well, really I, I, I know I would have, I know I would have to suspend a lot of disbelief. First of all, they have these American um, actors with the phony English accents representing themselves as Russians. And I'm sure that the, um, I don't know if the production values are that great, but uh, it's pretty hard on the back lot over there in Culver City to uh, recreate the, uh, the palace in St. Petersburg. Um, yeah. But I guess a guy getting shot uh, uh, 47 times makes a good movie, no matter how cheap the, uh, the special effects are. Uh, anything else? You got anything else for me? Uh, as far as Russian Russian movies, I have to think a little bit more about. Uh... Yeah, I can I can always pause stuff, but you can maybe I'll go with something here. Uh, yeah. When I when I think about um, first of all, obviously I heard Russian my whole life. Uh, my parents spoke Russian. Uh, we spoke Yiddish, of course, to them, but my parents spoke Russian among themselves. My father was a, a lodger, but he did speak Russian. He taught himself Russian. It's not a difficult language to learn. Once you know Polish, I think your father uh, would 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 have uh, would have told you that as well. So um, I did hear Russian a lot in my house, and I used to hear from my mother all the wonderful things about Russian cinema. When my grandfather came over in 1966. Uh, and that's another story in itself. He used to tell me also about uh, the greatness of Russian cinema. And, uh, of course, people who know about uh, Sergei Eisenstein and uh, a number of those great Russian films of the, the 20s and 30s, many of them sort of like somewhat propagandistic. Um, you know, the Russian cinema definitely has uh, a lot to offer if people are really interested in, in viewing it seriously. Now, Hollywood, of course... Um, you know, uh, of course, we couldn't deny the fact that it was um, very, very, um, uh, in a way, in competition with what the Russians were doing. Uh, they came out with a film that sort of poked fun at communism and um, poked fun uh, in a way of uh, whole European mannerism. And I think it was, um, 
you tell me if I got was was it Lubitsch's film, right? Ninochko, didn't Lubitsch, right? Uh, yeah. yeah. So we have a Jew, you know, one of the greatest directors of all time, Ninochka, which um, which um, was remade as a musical, you know, with uh, Fred Astaire and Sid Charisse, I think is called S Silk Stockings, uh, many years later, but a totally inferior film. But Ninochka to me is always a great uh, film to watch. Uh, I think the tagline of that film was when Garbo laughs. And of course, the film concerns the fact that's just to give people the background, you have these, uh, it has to do with the, the Tsarina or one of the princesses of the Tsar, uh, who the Russians who have kicked the Tsar and their uh, family out have now taken the palace over and are now in possession, uh, state property of the jewels, uh, the crown jewels that belong uh, to the uh, to the that used to belong to the Zara to the Zara's yeah, she's family. Trying to get it back, right? And she's trying to she's trying to get it back. And these three Russian um, communist aparchniks Hevra are sent to Paris because that's where uh, the uh, they're in exile. The, right. and of course, nobody really speaks French in the film, and all the French people are all speaking English, including Melvin Douglas, who, of course, uh, I think that's probably the, the best film he was ever in, uh, as far as I'm concerned. I know he made a num num number of other important films, but Melvin Douglas is really uh, extra special in that film. And he, um, what happens is, of course, is that these guys are just having a great time, enjoying the decadency of the West, and um, you know, doing whatever they can to Stonewall, not to go back uh, to Moscow. And yeah. uh, they're, they're kind of, you know, uh, going against their, their their communist beliefs. There, yeah. I think Siggy Rugman is one of the, again. I'm, you know, my nephew who listens to the show says, you know, Uncle Abe. He says, where do you come up with this stuff? You know, it's like you're taking this out, like you're taking out the Rashi and Tysus. But, but I think. And, then, and I'm not looking this up, but I think Siggy Rugman or one of those uh, actors is uh, one of the uh, very, very famous Jewish uh, character actor. They play some of those three, those three guys. And that is just a riot to see them enjoying themselves and poking fun of communism and the decadency of, of, of the West at the same time. Really, the Lubitsch touch is really on display. But really, the grand piece of that is that the greatest serious actress of the time, the incredible ice queen beauty. Uh, the, the one who had uh, brought people to tears uh, in her portrayal of Camille. And also, she also played, by the way, she played Catherine the Great as well, you know, uh, the um, Greta Garbo, who I think was a Swedish actress, I believe. But uh, she definitely could put on, a, a, she definitely had a heavy European accent, but she was one of the most uh, considered the most beautiful woman alive in her time and a great American movie star. And this was the film where Garbo laughs and uh, she comes in as this stern, hard as nails, communist uh, person who's going to clean up the act and get rid of um, uh, and get rid of, uh, you know, make sure that everything is taken care of and that the jewels uh, will be the jewels are going to be uh, returned or, or are going to be kept in their possession. And of course, she becomes infatuated with the wonders of the lifestyle of the of Paris as well. And um, but my favorite part of the film is when they actually go back to Russia. Um, I don't know if you remember this, uh, uh, Yitzhak, 
Uh, I think you told me that you fell, you're falling asleep whenever you see Ninochka. But I think that at the, if you wait till the end of the film, when in defeat, after she has been vanquished by, um, by the Tsarina's daughter or whatever it is, they go back to Russia and you get to see what it's like to live in communist Russia in these apartment buildings where you share everything, including bathrooms. And uh, I, it just to me, when I saw that, and I've seen the film about 15 times, I think, or 10 times, because I know my mother grew up in communist Russia. In a way, uh, it's, it's, I'm very happy to see that portrayed. And I'm happy to see the, um, and yet, if you see the film, just like everything Lubitsch did, it's not one-sided. In a way, you see that there's something to the great Russian uh, ideals and their discipline and what they were after, despite all the corruption uh, that goes on there. And I think that, uh, like I said, when characters are much more than uh, one-dimensional, we are, they're able to, we're able to think about them and I think it's able to expand ourselves. Okay, I, I made a big drush, I got another thing. You have my, anything? My, my favorite uh, fellow Hungarian, Bela Lugosi is in that as well. Plays the, plays the commissar in that. Ah, he's, but I think he gets displaced, right? I think Bela Lugosi is the first commissar, and the second one is is at, is is a Jew who plays the. If you if you're going to the page now, the one who replaces him is the one who was um, a very famous character actor, a Jewish fellow who was famous to most people as Abner uh, on Bewitched. He was the um, he was Ab, the next door neighbor to the Stevenses. Uh, and always telling, uh, he's always telling his wife to uh, that she's crazy. But you know, what I'm talking. But that actor, I think, plays the second commissar, also a Jewish fellow. I have to look him up who he is. Yeah. What do you have? What do you have? A, a film number two, Russians. And Billy Wilder was one of the, uh, the the screenwriters. Oh, Billy Wilder was a screenwriter there. Yeah. The whole thing is really a whole kit and caboodle of Eden over there. Yeah. Um, so I, I get you know, there's one. Kind of like, I guess, obscure Russian movie from 1924, a silent film. I'm not sure how it's pronounced exactly. Elita, the Queen of Mars, a silent film, a science fiction movie uh, about. Uh, why, why am I not surprised that this is your second choice? But go ahead. And have, you, have you even seen this film or is it just on your bucket list or your wish no, list? No, I've seen it. I, I remember it was on the Sci Fi Channel when I was a kid and I taped it. I was very interested in silent film uh, as a child, and uh, I really, uh, it was an interesting... uh, And what did it tell you about Russian culture, about Russians, or anything? Well, you know, it it was talking about, you know, people, it was was dealing with elements of of what they were dealing with, communism and so forth, and it it comes up that, you know, they're they're looking through a telescope on Mars, and they see that there's a uh, an uprising against the uh, the ruling group of elders and the and the queen, but meanwhile uh, he falls in love with with this queen that he sees through through the telescope. But it's uh, it's it's you know seeing the the uh, the same thing going on. What happened in Russia with an, uh, with the revolt and the uprising uh, happening on another planet? And uh, yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. Thing. So uh, again, you 
using science using science fiction as as usual as a way to comment on uh, on, on the situation there. So it was it was it, it was clearly a pro communist film though, right? Yeah. Yeah, like the Battleship Potemkin and all these great Russian films, they were all created in they were all created in service of the uh, uh, of, of the communists, and that's yeah. I guess why people discount them. Um, I'm going to go with my second film here, um, and this I think is um, I forgot who the director is. You can look it up while I'm talking. Um, is it Norman Jewison? The Russians are coming. The Russians are coming. Right. Um, uh, and this was a film I saw probably when it first came on television, I guess in 1967 or 68. Um, right, yes, Jewison, yep. Yeah. Norman Jewison, not a Jew. Um, but uh, it's got two, uh, the two leads are Jews. Uh, you have Alan Arkin, who is like this Jew who never plays a Jew. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, you might remember him from The Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner. You might remember him as the... Um, um, Carson McCullers, or where he plays the deaf mute, um, isn't it, isn't that the loneliness of the long distance runner? Is that it? Or no, no, um, maybe maybe I'm getting the I'm getting my films confused. But Alan Arkin uh, doesn't have a classic Jewish look, um, but Alan Arkin definitely a Jew. Played Yosarian, of course, uh, some sort of uh, Greek or something in Catch Twenty Two, but he also um, in this film. Uh, plays the Russian, and um, what happens is a Russian submarine finds itself um, uh, beached on the California coast, and they don't want there to be an international incident, and yet, for some reason, the submarine, I forgot what the plot device was, but the submarine is not able to just get back. They need the townspeople, I think, to somehow help them. And really what the film is about, and it was really made as, you know, the Cold War was still in its uh, hot stage uh, to really let people realize how similar we were. Uh, and, and that way, it's sort of a, a similar film to Ninochka um, because uh, you, you could, the same way Garbo, who's playing this die-in-the-wool communist, is really such a sympathetic figure that you really are rooting for. You're, you're really rooting with the Russians, despite the fact that the film was made during a period when we were expecting the Russians to, uh, it's, it's only like three years after Failsafe, where we're seeing the Russians as the ones that are going to uh, send us into a nuclear winter. And um, I think the film, the other Jew in it, of course, is, and I'm very disappointed with his role in it, and that is Carl Reiner. I think Alan, yeah. Ark, I think Alan Arkin got... Uh, Oscar nomination or a Golden Globe nomination for it, I don't remember. But Carl Reiner plays the typical American uh, father. And, um, and uh, you know, I have to tell you, other than his, I did not, I, I don't, I, I haven't seen the kinescopes of your show of shows or the Sid Caesar show. And people say how wonderful he was in that program. But, um, you know, he's a, he is Be'etzim a second banana. You know what I'm saying? Carl Reiner. So, you me on Twitter. So, I, I always have a, I have a little bit of uh, <laughs> before before he, he left this world uh, for a few years, I, I always felt like this. Why, why did he block me on Twitter? I wished him happy birthday a few times, but then I, I said something about the uh, politics and then I got blocked. So, because <laughs> he was, he, he really he hated was, Trump. He, he, 
he was just nifter this year. He lived to be about yeah. 90. I think he was about 99. How old was he? Yeah. I think so. Uh, something. He was up there. He was up yeah. there. Right. It's actually, um, and of course, Carl Reiner um, was not only a, a writer for Sid Caesar, but he also acted in the program. Um, he also, of course, was uh, in our family. We will always be Makar Tov to him for his uh, creation of the, you know, one of the greatest sitcoms of all time, the Dick Van Dyke Show. Yeah. And um, it's interesting if you take a look at the pilot of that show, which I think was called Man of the Family. It has Carl Reiner as this fellow living in Westchester, um, and it's terrible. Every joke falls flat. There was yeah. something about taking this, you know, relatively unknown, you know, comedian and uh, Dick Van Dyke that somehow worked. Carl Reiner was great, though, in that show, playing at first the first couple of seasons. You never saw him. He was just a. Uh, he would never show his face to the camera. But eventually he becomes, of course, uh, the personality uh, fully formed of Alan Brady. And uh, um, he did a lot of other shtick in the show. A lot of times he would do voiceovers. He played other crazy characters like uh, the painter that painted Laura uh, in her birthday suit uh, one yeah. time. And, and he, he, I think he also played uh, uh, Stacy Petrie's uh, best friend who was a drunk in the in the gutter. But... I think his his portrayal of Alan Brady was also uh, tremendous. Unfortunately, in The Russians Are Coming, he plays just a, you know, a typical nondescript sort of uh, character who's just getting upset. And I don't know, I, I, I seem to remember there is a certain growth arc, but if you are going to watch The Russians Are Coming, Alan Arkin is is the reason why to watch it. He really does bring, besides the humor of the situation there, also, another reason to watch The Russians Are Coming, just because anything that this person is in is a mitzvah rabba to, to see. And that's, of course, Jonathan Winters is in that as well. And to me, I can watch Jonathan Winters read the Manhattan phone book. <laughs> I don't know how you feel about Jonathan Winters, but, yeah. uh, but what? I, mean, I was first exposed to him watching Mork and Mindy, where he played the where he plays Mork's son. Yes, he yeah. he's he 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 ages. <laughs> he's yeah. he's aging backward. But and, part of the reason why uh, Robin Williams wanted him was because he loved Jonathan Winter so much, and so much of Robin Williams' shtick was really uh, based on. Uh, the type of things he saw in Jonathan Winters, uh, the, the the lightning fast reactions, uh, the ability to ad lib on a dime, um, you know, just breaking the fourth wall and and, and basically just saying the craziest uh, things and you doing them with, you know, all these different types of accents and voices. So in many well, ways, in many ways, mad, mad, mad world, that was a that was, you know, totally different type of uh accent and everything than you than you picture him you know oh he yeah well he loved <laughs> he jonathan winters enjoyed very much um you know playing people with very little brain um and uh but he actually he, i would say even that film which many people have it on their best films i can't see how anybody can waste their life on it i mean i i we watched it when we were seven eight nine years old but you know, Stanley Kramer is a very good Jew. Okay, Stanley, Stanley, 
without being big doesn't always mean great. It was a big movie, but it wasn't really a great movie. And 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 really, again, it's sort of you know, the fact that we're going to put the Three Stooges in there and every single possible, you know, cameo we can get out of it. I think the Jerry Lewis has a cameo in it as well. Um, yeah. So does uh, so is Leo Gorsi. Uh, Leo Gorsi's daughter told us that she had no idea. What, that her father was an actor until she saw she saw him in the in the in in that movie and she thought maybe he only did cameo appearances she didn't know because <laughs> like, he tried to keep it a secret from her he wanted to well you know he didn't want her to <laughs> I would say Jonathan Winters destroying that uh, that little hut or whatever it is that's probably one of the best things in that film. Um, I think it's, you know, uh, Stanley Kramer loved Spencer Tracy and through, you know, gave him this, uh, this, this chance to sort of like, you know, to have this, you know, this role there. But um, yeah, you can definitely live without it. Um, and, and Bill it, Silvers it, also. It's, it's, uh, Bill it's, Silvers it's, is not bad in it. I would say the ones that are probably come out the worst in it is two great Jewish, and you mentioned them uh, the other day. I think you wanted to mention, uh, uh, we, we didn't have time, but Milton Burrow and Sid Caesar, of course, are both in that film, and they have starring roles. Um, and both, both of them are really terrible in it. I mean, again, the characters that they play are, are so one-dimensional and non-funny. Um, yeah in that film and both of them of course were comic geniuses uh yeah. both uh and, and it's really a shame that uh you know that this film sort of demeans them in that way again jonathan winters you know he he can do it um yeah buddy hackett another good jew <laughs> uh buddy hackett is is tolerable um if you really want to see buddy hackett as a jew um check out on the on uh, prime video on the Carson channel, you'll see him talking about his Jewish upbringing. He talks about his, he has a recipe for cholent that he yeah. mentions on there. Oh, you know about that? No, I didn't. No, I'd like to see that. I'll have to look. Yeah, you that. can, you can hear Buddy Hackett. So Buddy Hackett is tolerable if you can tolerate Buddy Hackett. But uh, who else go, was in, the Russians are coming was also Theodore Baikel was in there. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, Theodore Baikel was like a frumer. <laughs> what does he play? He plays one of the uh, the people in Moscow, or he actually like he plays one of the. Um, he's not on the submarine, I don't think. It's been so many years since I said. I have to tell you when 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 I, I saw it for the first time on the Saturday night uh, NBC Saturday night at the movies. Um, I remember how happy my mother Olsholm was. You know, oh, Russians, Russians, I, we're Russians. It was just, it was just something that I remember the simcha that she had in watching it. And I think that's part of the reason why it's, I haven't seen it in years, but that's part of the reason why it stayed with me um, and was able to do that. All right. So we walked down memory rain a little bit, May, but I, I. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. Thank you.